Good evening. This is Dr. Eric Greenberg on the Dr. Eric Greenberg Show. This is January 21st, 2018, and I'm recording this, which is at least nominally the third episode of my show, uh, at about 9.17 p.m. Um, I've been trying to record one episode of the podcast every week, trying to keep myself to a schedule. I think that that would be the source of some excellent success for this show certain amount of regimentation, certain amount of discipline in, in taking on certain topics on a regular basis and sharing with my audience um, some of my ideas, my thoughts, my concerns. Um, one of the things that I would like to talk about tonight, in fact, actually, I think the main thing that I'd like to talk about um, is largely connected to the Me Too movement. And if, if uh, any of you are not aware of this, uh, if you've been hiding under a rock, or if people are uh, looking back on this particular podcast 10 years from now and the uh, movement is, you know, is, is not in the limelight or people need to know what the hashtag Me Too means, um, just a little bit of background, uh, sort of an online campaign that was begun um, several months ago to highlight the the rampant nature of sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape, and uh, sexual harassment that is experienced by women uh, around the U.S. particularly, and, and to show, to demonstrate how prevalent it is. Um, and I think a lot of us who haven't been hiding under a rock have known for a long time that, you know, we're, I, I don't remember the statistics, but some people have said that one in every three women in the United States have experienced some type of sexual assault, rape, or a serious form of sexual harassment. Um, and and I, I think I was aware of that number, or some similar numbers, but when you see a large number of people who are women, or who at least identify as women, in their online platforms putting simply, me too, and then some of them sharing their personal experiences in, in the situations in their lives, sometimes multiple situations throughout their lives, in which they have been either assaulted, raped, uh, or have faced some type of really debilitating and crippling form of uh, sexual harassment. And I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, catcalls on a, on a train, but, um, you know, excessive forms of sexual harassment, either by a co-worker or somebody in a position of, of authority. And so this movement seems to have really participated or, or helped to catalyze a lot of people coming out, particularly within the entertainment industry, within Hollywood and the various uh, associated uh, uh, entertainment fields, and calling out the the abusers, the, um, the the people like Harvey Weinstein, and, and there are a whole bunch of other people like him right, at, right now at this point who have been accused uh, for being alleged sexual abusers, uh, rapists, uh, assaulters, and so forth, that they have in some way caused um, tremendous damage to the women around them that they are working with, who th whom they have a certain amount of power over. Um, and I think this is a very important movement. Uh, this is very important that it has uh, begun. I have, of course, however, wondered at what point would there be some backlash? At what point would we see the pendulum swing and certain people, certain parties, um, utilizing it for personal gain or utilizing the, 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 the platform of the movement for political gain? And perhaps... Recently, there there are a couple of incidents. Uh, some people have claimed that 
um, this Leanne Tweeden, who is a, a conservative um, blogger or journalist who has accused Senator Al Franken of some form of sexual assault or sexual harassment on at least perhaps two occasions. She says that it involved uh, some of their public performances while they were on USO tours, that he grabbed her and kissed her while on stage. And then there's the, um, the famous photograph of him ostensibly either grabbing her breasts while she was asleep on some type of a transport plane um, and a photographer, that he and a photographer colluded to take this photo as a joke uh, that either he has grabbed her or he is feigning to grab her as a gag for the for the camera. Um, I'll get into this in a minute, but so <clears throat> some people have have raised the uh, the notion that maybe this had been used as a political football by the conservatives to try to get Al Franken out of the way, and that what he did um, was not nearly to the level of what the Harvey Weinstein's of the world have done, and that maybe maybe this was something that has been deliberately misinterpreted and twisted by Leanne Tweeden as a political ploy. Anyway, these are some things that I will I'll handle. But I think at this point, one of the things that's been on my mind over the last several days is the particulars of an incident <clears throat> regarding the comedian and writer Aziz Ansari, who is, at least from a Muslim background, a, a South Asian background, uh, regardless of whether he practices, he on some level does represent that community, the the uh, um, the, the people of color, uh, particularly from a, a South Asian um, uh, demographic, people from the Muslim world. Uh, he's somebody who has broken into mainstream media and has become very successful. And, and on many levels, he has represented um, sensitive masculinity, uh, both in some of his on-screen personas and, and also even in some of the publications that he has been involved in. Um, so he has been kind of looked at as one of the good guys or one of the... Um, <clears throat> The, the supporters, the friends of the, of the women's movement and the, uh, the, the so-called Me Too movement. Intriguingly, and very sadly, a few days ago, <clears throat> there was a, uh, an article posted on a uh, feminist website called, or a blogspot, I don't really know how we would define it, but it's called babe.net. Um, an article was penned by a young author named Katie Way, uh, and she had taken an interview with uh, an, a young woman who um, has remained anonymous but has um, pseudonymously um, styled herself as Grace. Uh, and so Katie Way, the, the, the journalist, is writing on behalf of Grace, who claims, who alleges that she had a date with Aziz Ansari back in the fall of 2017, so just a few months ago, um, <clears throat> that she actually pursued him at some type of a public gathering um, after a number of uh, communications uh, that they finally got together and went out on a date. Uh, they went back to his his place, his apartment, and that they engaged in a variety of different forms of sexual contact, uh, ranging from um, oral sex performed by him on her or mutual oral sex. It, it seems to be a little bit uh, foggy in some of the retellings of it. Um, and then ultimately in some type of uh, penetrative, intercursive um, sex that they engaged in. And, and by all accounts, it seems to have been, at least at face value, consensual, uh, and that it does not seem to have 
transgressed any of the current uh, laws regarding non-consensual sex uh, and crimes of that sort. Um, but the way that she has described it, not only was it an extremely disappointing experience for her, but that she characterized him as being boorish and bullish um, and stereotypically uh, characterization of the the insensitive male, exactly what he is not portraying himself as in his on-screen personas and in his, in his public life. Um, <clears throat> so, the interesting outgrowth of this was that uh, a veteran journalist named Ashley Banfield, who was among those who were flirting with danger while covering 9-11 and putting her life at risk, um, she criticized Katie Way publicly, and, and I think in on, on her... Uh, cable TV uh, show, talk show, she criticized the author Katie Way for being reckless and hollow in her accusations of Aziz Ansari. Katie Way chose to argue back um, in tweets, I believe it was. It seems like, it seems like Twitter is becoming the um, the Lazarus of the social media. It seems to be uh, coming back from the dead, and I think on some level we have to we have to either blame or thank Donald Trump for this, but it seems like everybody else is coming out on, on Twitter at this point. Um, uh, about a year or so ago, a friend of mine who was very, very active in in, in social media as, as a, a form of, of branding and marketing, he was, he was chuckling to me. He was saying, ah, Twitter is so 2007. Of course, it was founded in 2007. Well, it seems like it's coming back. But anyway, back on track. <clears throat> this Katie Way had uh, responded to journalist Ashley Banfield on Twitter, I believe, <clears throat> and she chose to argue back ad hominem against the elder Ashley Banfield, who I believe is in her early 50s at this point. She argued about uh, against her age, against her looks, her style, talked about her lipstick, employing an extremely toxic, puerile, and petulant ageism in her criticism of Banfield's age and looks. And yet, on the other hand, citing her own youthfulness and success at the age of 22 as a sign of her, her correctness, her rightness. Uh, she says something in the article, I don't have it to quote in front of me, but something about it, uh, even at the age of 22, not too shabby. And then she, she goes on to, <clears throat> to essentially talk about how, and I could paraphrase this, that, uh, that Banfield will one day bow down to her and see the error of her, of her ways, something of that sort. It's, it's particularly odious. Uh, and very, very puerile, very childish. But <clears throat> I wanted to mention that I had been following a similar interaction between the author, well-known uh, author, African-American author, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, who was having an interchange with the also equally well-known scholar of religion and philosophy, uh, public intellectual named Cornell West, who currently teaches at Harvard, um, and I noticed some similarities in this situ in these two situations, and that's maybe what I want to focus on for the next few moments. Now, I want to say that I have a lot of respect for both Ta-Nehisi Coates and Cornell West. I think Coates is an extremely brilliant author with a lot of insightful things to say. He is he's relatively young, if I recall. I think he's in his his late thirties at this point in time. Um, he is, uh, an incredible writer. Um, the, the one thing that I will say is that he is still quite young and he is not a scholar per se. And now I don't mean to be elitist or, or exclusivistic in my, 
rating people's value by way of their education. That is not me, and I hope that you will come to that understanding about me. I, I really do not think that a person's education uh, is always an accurate indication of their abilities or their talents or their, their value to the world. This is not what I'm saying, but he's coming off like a young whippersnapper and he doesn't have the street cred, so to speak, to carry it off. Whereas on the other hand, Cornell West is superior in his education and is by far the elder of Ta-Nehisi Coates and is much more, uh, has much more experience and wisdom. Now, I actually got a chance to meet uh, Cornell West many, many years ago. Actually, maybe not not that long ago, but uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, he actually spoke at my college graduation from Wesleyan University in 1993, and I had never heard of him before. I mean, obviously, he was he was already a great scholar, but I was still quite young, and there were a lot of scholars I did not know of, and I didn't know about him until he came to speak as our as our uh, keynote speaker. And he really touched me. He he was an incredible speaker, and having a person who was a religious studies scholar, a theologian, on that podium at the time when I was just graduating and going gradually to graduate school, I, I was going to be going to Korea to study Buddhism for a short while before going to grad school, and just, so having this man as an exemplar there in front of me, uh, this liberal, progressive, um, left-leaning individual who was an incredible thinker, but was also very sensible in many, many ways. Um, it, it inspired me. And so he was there uh, on the platform. He, he persisted in, in staying there even while we received our, our graduation hoods. And so I got a chance to shake his hand uh, as being one of the officials of the graduation. Uh, and I took a moment. I, I, I stopped there for a second and I uh, over the din of the applause and the pomp and stir circumstance music and all of that, I, I kind of shouted to him um, it, while shaking his hand. I said, if I recall correctly, um, I'm going to graduate school. No, I think I said I'm going to seminary school to be a theologian just like you. Now, I highly doubt that he remembers this 25 some odd years later. But this was kind of an interesting moment for me in, in meeting him. And it, it sort of launched me on this uh, on, on many years of respect for Cornell West, and any time I would hear about him in the newspapers or, or in media or hear about him becoming much more of a public intellectual and not merely somebody who spoke to the ivory tower, I was proud to say, I know that man. I met him. I shook his hand. He's an inspiration to me. So anyway, I wanted to say that regarding this interchange uh, from, it's actually, I think, a couple of months old at this point, but uh, Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates had written uh, a book not too long ago called We Were Eight Years in Power, uh, referring to uh, the Obama administration and the positive impact that it had on the African-American population, um, but in light of what has happened since then in terms of the Trump administration, um, and putting this in the context of white supremacy um, and the, 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 the problematic circumstance of uh, African-Americans. Um, Cornel West rightly critiqued Coates's work. And in a number of, um, of articles that I've read online, he critiqued Coates's work as being far too one-sided 
not sufficiently critical of the Obama administration and especially its usage of uh, drones in extrajudicial killings and a variety of other things that one could say are are the faults or, or the, 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 the shortcomings of the Obama administration, which West himself was highly critical of. And so this is one of the reasons why I say that he is very level-headed, even though you know, he is firmly within the left-leaning camp of scholarship and politics. He is, he is not somebody who will turn a blind eye to the ills of the party. And I'm really, really excited that he has always been willing to stand up and, and um, decry uh, things that have happened, particularly on Obama's watch. So he had said that uh, in, his, in his critiques of Coates', Coates work, he says that he was not sufficiently critical of the Obama administration, that he quote-unquote fetishizes white supremacy while ignoring Wall Street and other factors that are keeping the black community from advancing. Um, now, Coates, in his responses to to West online, particularly on tw- on Twitter. Once again, going back to Twitter, Twitter seems to be the the I don't know the the I don't know the killing fields of the, the the just some type of grounds where people get themselves mired in some kind of morass. Um, I think it's problematic. Uh, but he was petulant and took the debate far too personally and shut down his Twitter account ultimately. So after this back and forth with 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 Cornell West, in which Cornell West calls him out. Uh, he acted he acted in a very juvenile fashion, as if he were a baby who was being scolded by his elders and just clammed up and, and didn't say anything else. And he shut down his Twitter account. Now, I don't know if he has opened it up again or if he's issued any public apologies or anything of the sort, but frankly, my estimation of him has diminished a little bit, perhaps more than a little bit. Um, you know, if it's too hot in the kitchen, get out of the kitchen. Um... So, but on some level, I would say that this feud that he had with West, with Cornell West, indicates a lack of respect for his elders and his betters in his, and his inability to take criticism and to engage in constructive and rational discourse with a less than sanguine and adulatory interlocutor. And I'm talking about West, who was not willing to, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to do what a lot of the rest of the... the the left-leaning media does, which is to, I'm sorry to say this, to kind of kiss Ta-Nehisi Coates' butt. You know, um, Cornell West is a, is a damn brilliant man. And if he disagrees with Coates, he's going to say it. And I think he did it in a very polite and constructive manner. And Coates did not take that very well. And I think he acted like a baby. Now, I'm kind of drawing that parallel to what happened with... Katie Way and Ashley Banfield, where Ashley Banfield is the Cornell West of this moment, who I believe very respectfully and in a professional manner, uh, being the elder stateswoman in this in this situation, had called Katie Way out for um, for something reckless in terms of her journalism, and I think she was right. But Katie Way did not take this uh, very well. Um, she acted in a very puerile manner. She became an example, and I, and I would say that she and Coates are also examples of lack of respect among our youth, embodying an unwillingness to listen to their elders. And so even though both of these are examples of people in the liberal camps, they seem to be following the example of Trump, who never apologizes, who never looks at his, his own mistakes, his own shortcomings, but uh, fires back with ad hominem arguments. 
I could see them very easily uh, walking into uh, Trump's camp and, and learning something from him. All right. So I think we're going back to the Me Too movement because I, I want to spend a little more time on that. Um, this was a very important thing which helped to expose some of the most destructive people in the entertainment industry, for starters, and has propelled a sentiment far beyond that industry, raising awareness everywhere, in every potential corner of life in the United States, where there has been any type of uh, abusive power dynamic, particularly regarding um, men exercising this power over women and acting in... Uh, very damaging ways of a of a sexual nature. Um, but with the slew of toxic or narcissistic males who have been outed as abusers or harassers, I knew that there was a risk that at the moment, that the movement um, might go too far. And I've read a number of articles by feminists who are in support of Al Franken, for, for instance, uh, decrying Leanne Tweeden's accusations against Franken, as being potentially politically motivated and not qualifying as sexual assault, in fact. Particularly in that they were in full view of the public in a scenario that was largely staged and rehearsed. And it seems that it was more an issue, perhaps, of actors and performers, entertainers, which is what they were both at the time, not communicating with one another about what they were comfortable with in their performance, uh, on one hand, and that Tweedon's claims in fact, are an insult to the women out there who were truly assault and raped in their lives. Um, and I'm referring specifically to Dr. G.S. Potter's article in Medium, uh, which I think was one of the most well-worded refutations of, of Tweedon's claims. And Dr. Potter is a woman, a feminist, who also uh, is a survivor of rape and sexual assault. And she takes this very personally. And she says, you know, I've, um, I've suffered this stuff, and Leanne Tweedon has suffered nothing like this. And is insulting, uh, insulting us in this respect. So I think that the pendulum may have swung a little bit farther in an unhealthy and irrational direction with the calling out of Aziz Ansari by an anonymous woman, calling herself Grace, as I have mentioned, in this article penned by Katie Way in the feminist blog site babe.net. Right? And as I mentioned before, Way writes an account told to her by Grace in which Ansari acted in an ungentlemanly fashion embodied the typical boorish and insensitive man, but in no verifiable way has been identified to have transgressed any current laws about non-consensual sex. Now, in the article, Grace, through Way's pen, seems to suggest that she had no power to say no and was powerless against Ansari's wiles. A number of feminist writers have critiqued, actually criticized, come out and criticized Grace for making herself appear to be the helpless damsel who cannot make up her mind and as such has undermined the power of women. And one of the best worded pieces, I think, regarding this was <clears throat> written by journalist, uh, veteran journalist Caitlin Flanagan uh, in her piece in The Atlantic, actually just a few days ago, which calls Grace out for implying that women have no power to say no and in casting herself as the helpless damsel. And it strikes me that in this situation, at least, no criminal action has been brought against him. Sorry. Now, this is, I think that this is important. No actual laws were even alleged to have been broken, even by her testimony. So it's not even a matter of he said, she said here, you know, and who's going to believe you uh, when you take this to court. She's not going to court. All right. Merely that he, rather, 
that he has embodied the stereotypical insensitive and bullish male that has that he has purported not to be, as depicted in his on-screen characterizations. And it strikes me that we have already tried him in the court of public opinion. We're not even talking about bringing him to court for a criminal action. That's not even anything that that Grace, so-called Grace, is asking for, as opposed to some of the situations with, let's say, Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, where these are criminal actions. These are clear, clearly criminal actions that they are being accused of, and somebody's bringing them to court, and that's a good thing. All right, let's get it out there. But she's not even claiming that in this. And while he might not be a good man that I would recommend to my single female friends as a potential love match, Ansari does not seem to have been charged with or convicted of any crime, and I think at this point a witch hunt may be in the process, and I think Ansari may be the party most wronged here in the form of libelous accusations. Now, I don't want to appear to be taking the man's side, but I think that it's very important that in whatever situation we're dealing with here, that we ensure that due process is carried out. And this is something that I and anybody of a progressive mindset uh, have been saying regarding um, those who are accused of terrorist acts over the last, well, I guess at this point it's been, what, 16 years? 17 years since 9-11? 16, 17 years? And you got a whole bunch of people still in Guantanamo Bay right now who have never been charged with any crime, and due process is not being carried out. And those of us who, who do believe in the, the laws of this country, and that they apply to everyone, not just the people who are currently in favor, the due process has to be carried out. So in a situation like this, due process is not being carried out. Um, <clears throat> but while considering all of these things lately, I've come to some thoughts that I would like to share with you, which might offer some constructive ways for society to move forward, particularly uh, regarding those of us who either are male or identify as male, present ourselves as male. The first time that I ever truly came to face, came face to face with the concept of sexual assault, you know, as in a situation that affected in me in any way, was as a third party hearing about such an assault that had affected a number of friends of mine. I was, I think I was in my junior year of high school, and I won't mention any last names here for fear that anyone will hear this at some point in time and uh, be embarrassed or shamed. Um, but I will give first names. Um, I had a very a couple of friends who were very very close to me. Uh, they were a year older than me. They were seniors. I was a junior. Um, but uh, one of the guys, his name was Eric. He had started dating a young woman. She was a couple of years younger than us. I think she might have been a, a sophomore at the time. Her name was Danielle. And Eric. Eric was, was very smitten with Danielle, and she was a very sweet girl, very intelligent, just a good kid, honor student. All of us were that. We were all honor students. We were all intelligent kids. But Eric started dating Danielle, and at some point in time, she revealed to him, she shared with him, that her previous boyfriend, a guy named Kenny, who was not academically inclined, I will say that about him. He was not an honor student. He was not in the honor society. He was, from what I knew of Kenny, he was rough around the edges. I don't think I knew much about him, whether he was a good guy or a bad guy. But looking back on him, yeah, he was that type of guy. But 
What Danielle had revealed to Eric was that when she had been dating Kenny, I guess maybe a year beforehand or a few months beforehand, he had far forced himself on her sexually. He forced her to perform uh, uh, oral sex on him. And obviously this was very disturbing to her. To her. Uh, she was very young and inexperienced. I believe, I, you know, I believe she was a virgin at the time. So this was kind of, this is like her first sexual experience in any way where this boy forces himself on her. I don't know how long they continued to date after that. I don't know whether this was the the um, catalyst of their breakup or what, but she revealed this to Eric, and Eric was was just beside himself with grief that somebody would do this to somebody that he loved, that he cared about, um, you know. And so I remember standing in my driveway one night with with Eric and a few of the other guys. Tony and Pete, I don't remember how many of us were there, and we were talking about this situation, and he was just trying to wrap his mind around it. And I think even at the time, it caused a rift between him and Danielle, uh, between himself and Danielle. I think that she was even at a point where she needed to break up with him because she was dealing with the, the emotional fallout of the abuse. You know, here's a good guy who's trying to support her, and she just was just really unable to function in a relationship at that point, even with a good guy, because of what had been done to her by this bad guy a few months beforehand. And I, so, you know, secondhand, it really affected Eric. And then thirdhand, I'm hearing about it, and I'm coming face to face with that this is what people out there are doing. That not everyone is as, you know, as honorable as, as the rest of my friends. That there are people out there that would force themselves on somebody against their will. And I remember us standing there in my, in my driveway and just kind of talking about this and trying to wrap our minds around this. I think even, if I recall, um, Eric shared it with my mother because my mother was sort of like an older friend to a lot of my friends. She would kind of give them a lot of helpful perspective on things going on in their lives. Uh, and I remember even, even it was sort of being bandied about that uh, Eric was thinking of having one of our other uh, rough-around-the-edges uh, friends who was from a more urban setting perhaps find some some large and swarthy friends of his and go and beat the tar out of this Kenny guy. I mean, that was sort of bandied about at the time. I don't think it ever was carried out. Um, but this was, I think, the first time that this, that it was more of a personal situation for me. It was something that affected people that I cared about. And it wasn't just, um, you know, faces on a page in a magazine. <clears throat> Throughout my life, since that point in time, it has become evident to me that a number of people in my life have been adversely affected by sexual assault, rape, sexual harassment, particularly the former two. And many of these people in my lives are dear loved ones. And to the best of my knowledge, all of these incidents have happened long before I was anywhere in the picture or could do anything about it. Some of these uh, incidents happened to relatives of mine before I was even born. Um, but in coming to know about these incidents in the lives of my loved ones, it has always caused a feeling of helpness, helplessness, uh, an inability to defend those that I love. And it has induced me to want to do more than just stand idly by. Now, as we continue to redefine masculinity in our society at this point in time, Amidst a world that has expressed a desire to part company with the toxic masculinity of the days of yore, and has come to grips, excuse me, has yet to come to grips with the reality of transgender people choosing to identify as one gender and another, 
or another, choosing to present and proclaim their identity. However, the world is discarding a lot of the old forms of expression and stereotypes and archetypes and formerly irreducible elements of what we would call masculinity. But amidst this mire of deconstructed nuts and bolts, we have not yet reconstructed what we want the new masculinity to be. And perhaps we have needed the extra time to do so. Some people seem to want to discard the binary gender system altogether. Others have at times doubled down and become more entrenched in their support of traditional gender roles. But I think the latter party is waning and the former party will never truly represent the majority on the other hand. Um, you know, I support permitting people the space to define themselves and their identity and to allow them to express their masculinity or the lack thereof in their own ways. You know, I think this is going to be something that is very personal, that people are going to have to define for themselves what masculinity is or conversely what femininity is. That's something that's that's the next big frontier in our society at this point in time. And I don't think we have any answers. I don't have any answers. Uh, but I do support the idea of people trying to work it out for themselves and supporting them. Uh, you know, there was <clears throat> this kind of this thing online where, you know, there's a lot of the young hipsters who are growing beards and wearing a lot of flannel and, and uh, wearing hiking boots and just kind of embodying some of the more traditionally masculine, uh, stereotypically uh, macho forms of styles, you know, the ha big handlebar mustaches and the beards and so forth. And sometimes people jokingly call them lumber sexuals as if they were somehow emulating the, the traditional stereotypical lumberjack. And sometimes people will uh, disparage this, saying, hey, you know, if you don't know how to change a tire, why are you wearing that kind of shirt? Or, you know, if you don't actually know how to fill trees with your with your axe, you know, what business do you have wearing a lumberjack shirt? That sort of thing. And then, of course, from the other side, people come back saying, well, who the heck are you to tell me what to wear or how I should look? You know, I think we need to, as they say, I think we need to get rid of these toxic, stereotypical gender roles that say I have to look this way if I am embodying this gender and so forth. So with that in mind, with that as, as background, um, I think it is time for those of us who do choose to present ourselves as male, as masculine, you know, bearing in mind that, that, that element of choice that I've just mentioned, those of us who present ourselves as male, who identify as male, as masculine, I think it is time to make some positive and proactive choices. And a lot of this has to do with what the women who have bravely chosen to express themselves as part of the Me Too movement have collectively asked of us. And I've seen this in a lot of online articles. There's a sense of, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, you have, you of course have the, uh, a lot of backlash from men saying in response, not all men, you know, hashtag not all men. And I think that comes from a place of fear saying, I haven't done anything wrong, please don't blame me. Okay, fine. So while many have been expressing their anger and their pain over what has happened to them, you know, particularly women or even some, some men who have been assaulted in these circumstances have been expressing themselves in the Me Too movement, the women are simultaneously asking men, whether we are biologically male or not, to do something. They're asking us to stop allowing those of us who have committed affronts 
and any form of sexual assault, rape, harassment, or whatever, they're asking us to stop allowing those folks to do so. They're asking us to form a line, to show our support, to cleanse our ranks, so to speak, police your brass, to use a military term. Police your own. Some of us have attempted to do so, but in a lot of ways, I don't yet see the kind of broad-reaching and systemic support that there really should be. There is a lot more that we can do than merely, quote-unquote, hold space for our sisters while they grieve their wounded pasts. There is indeed so much more that we can do. And as I think, as, as we continue to rethink what it means to be male, and we debate over every single feature and phenotype that formerly was associated with masculinity, perhaps the one thing that we should and must agree on at this time is that of the traditional role of the protector. Now, people are going to disagree with me on this. Maybe people are going to misunderstand me on this, but I would ask you to listen and think about what I'm saying before you have a knee-jerk reaction, saying, oh, this guy is just some kind of reactionary caveman that wants us to go back to swinging clubs at anybody that affronts us or our family members. One of the key features of traditional masculinity for millennia has been that of protector. This has been understood and promulgated throughout most, if not all, world societies to some degree. That is to stand guard, to keep watch, to defend. To defend the women in our lives, wives, mothers, sisters, daughters, friends, as well as their whole families and each other. Other men. I, I'm, I'm recalling the just the image of soldiers fighting with each other. It's always said, you know, that, that in actual battle, soldiers don't fight for a cause. They fight for each other. They fight to save each other's lives. You know, when it all comes down to that, you know, you might go off to war to, to spread democracy or Christianity or whatever it is or to stop Nazism. But, you know, when you're in the foxhole, as they say, there's no, those, there's no, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Also in a foxhole, you're fighting for your buddy. You're fighting for your buddy's life. So this is part of the age old, <clears throat> essence of masculinity that has been understood and accepted in most societies. From the time of the primordial cave, in the first settlements of civilization, in cities, in nations, in warfare, as I said, and persistently, even in the modern family, it has been our natural and biological duty to defend and protect, at times even to avenge. Now, am I saying that by definition women should be excluded, that we're only talking about men, that this is something, this is a feature that is um, irreducibly and distinctively and exclusively masculine, that women cannot be protectors? Absolutely not. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I think the image of the, uh, the, the mother lion protecting her cubs is also a very powerful one. You know, it seems to me in, in Leonine society, and I don't mean to be I don't mean to be, be disparaging anybody else's species, but it seems like in Leonine society, the males, they kind of spend most of their time fighting each other for the right to mate and hanging around sleeping. It seems like the females are the ones doing most of the work and going out and hunting and everything. So, but anyway, that's, so maybe Leonine society has some, uh, some progress to make in terms of their gender roles. But point is, am I saying that these roles are not available or should not be available to women? No, that is definitely not what I'm saying. 
Am I saying that we should continue to express this role in all of its toxic forms that we have seen for millennia, which include the domination of the women in our lives, to take over their autonomy, their independence, to take away their right to self-expression or self-determination, to decide whom they marry or have sexual relations with or how they conduct themselves? No, definitely not. But it is our biological and sociological imperative, perhaps our pure purview, to protect and defend. And if our sisters are asking us to believe them, and that is a key element of the Me Too movement, is to believe what they are saying, to actually take them seriously when they say, I've been raped, I've been wronged. All right. If our sisters are asking us to believe them, to support them, to protect them from the molestation of the proverbial outsider or other, and in some cases to avenge what has already been done in order to make sure it never happens again, then maybe we need to take this seriously, this request. So I would like to start a movement that will invite, even demand, that all men, be they biological or presenting themselves as such, identifying as such, that all men reaffirm this as their duty to women, family, and society, that they will carry out their duty, if they identify as men, to protect and defend that they scour their lives for any situation that they may remember in which they did not act rightly. They need to you know, first take stock of who they are and what they've done, whether that be that they in some way harmed a woman sexually, physically, or emotionally, and that they vow never to do it again and to think about the ways in which they have contributed to a woman's lack of security in their lives. That they vow to join arms with their brothers and sisters and to keep watch for pedophiles, rapists, sexual predators, and villains and cads of any sort, and to prevent any more assaults or rapes from happening. And I recommend that we use the hashtag, not on my watch. That would be our rallying cry. That would be sort of the, the, the employment of, and the implication of that, that sort of martial or military metaphor of standing guard, that if, that's, if that is our imperative, if that's, that's our purview, then that's what we're going to do. Not on my watch. I'm not going to let that happen. If I see it happening, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stand up and say no. That we will not allow another rape, assault, or harassment to happen or continue while we are around or know about it. If we see it and are able, we will stop it. If we hear about it, we will consult and rally and do what we can to correct and avenge it through legal means, of course, be it by law enforcement or by divesting ourselves from toxic structures of traditional patriarchy, that is, old boys' club dynamics and enclaves and industries such as those within Hollywood that allowed Harvey Weinstein and his ilk to function as predators with impunity for so many years so that it was considered endemic in the industry, an occupational hazard, if you will. And by saying that we need to stop supporting the, the structures of toxic masculinity and the patriarchy, I'm talking about not supporting the Leon Perskys of the world, the judge who sentenced Brock Turner to a very lenient uh, sentence, uh, and also recently uh, a female judge who sentenced a sex offender to, uh, I believe, to time served and... Um, probation and that he would have to be 
um, a registered sex offender for the rest of his life. I don't have the details of that one in front of me, but it was particularly recent and it was shocking that this would come from a, this kind of leniency, sort of old boys club leniency would come from a female judge. Um, we as a society and we as men need to stop that. We need to stop supporting that and saying that that's okay. So I'm not expecting perfection from people. I'm not expecting that everyone who stands up and joins this movement to have been blameless all their lives. I expect that at some times, that some have at times been clueless of the harmful nature of their choices and actions and attitudes at times. I've scoured my past and honestly asked myself if there was any incident in which I contributed to this, this system. I was raised in a way to be respectful of women. My mother and father instructed me in this, and also my grandfather, as an expression of his own traditional attitudes about masculinity, embodied the most loving and virtuous aspects of the old patriarchal system. He taught me that women are to be valued and respected and never, quote, taken advantage of. He said, I remember when I was young, he said, never take advantage of a woman. And I don't think I understood at the time what my grandfather meant by that phrase. I was really too young to understand that. But I think having that phrase in my head as an admonition, a guideline, was very important. And it took me several decades to really, truly gain a deeper understanding of the significance of that phrase. And yes, I will admit, there was likely a certain underlying sentiment of hierarchy and, and traditional patriarchal ideas behind that statement, yes. It's the same sentiment expressed by Grace, the anonymous author of the article in Babe.net, who sought to speak about her experience with Aziz Ansari. And as I mentioned earlier, many authors, notably feminists, have decried this attitude in her as if she had no agency and was continuing to embody the helplessness that was considered organic to women in earlier periods and is toxic, is considered toxic in current society. But despite the traditional values behind my grandfather's statement, the presupposition is that maybe at times a woman will not have her full faculties, perhaps being intoxicated, or that she will be at a disadvantage physically, and that it is not my right to take advantage of her being physically weaker or unable to say no. It is not my, it is not my right, or in any situation, that it is not my right to take away her autonomy, her right to self-determination, or to dishonor her in any way. All patriarchal imagery associated with that notwithstanding, all of that aside, it is a very noble sentiment that perhaps should remain valid for at least a little while longer. That inherent respect for woman. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I cannot think of any situation in my past where I quote-unquote took advantage of a woman where I deliberately and heedlessly went where I was not welcome. I know of no situation in which I forced myself physically or sexually upon a person or laid my hands upon a woman without her express permission. What I do remember is, as a teenager, perhaps in more than one situation, persisting in my public attentions to a girl in the form of puerile love letters or gifts or flowers, and while some may look back upon that as clueless and harmless youthful actions, I do know that in um, at least one situation it was perceived as pestering, and for that I am sorry. It was coming from a place of purity and affection, but also of desperation and a lack of self-worth, and fueled and fostered by a society that persistently tells males by way of media and entertainment that relentless and honorable pursuit of a woman's heart will eventually win her over, and that we are quote-unquote nothing without her. 
and I know that this pursuit caused some embarrassment and, conster and consternation for at least one young woman at that point in time. But because of my mother's admonitions, not to use my phallus as a toy, as some men do, and I remember her saying that to me at one point, that some men use their penises as if it were some brand new toy that they had found, and they wind up using it as a weapon. And simultaneously, my grandfather's admonitions to never take advantage of a woman, subsequent to this, I can honestly say that I have no memory of physically forging ahead in my adulthood in an unwelcome manner. I was very careful and quite reticent in my sexual development, perhaps at times to a fault, but at least I can sleep at night. And I think that if we, all, if we taught all males the basic values of respect for women, there would be fewer sexual assaults and fewer incidents of harassment. Um, throughout my life, in my dealings with the opposite sex, I have been deliberately very careful in how and where I trotted. For the sake of my own spirituality and ethics, as I conceived of them, but also for the sake of other human beings whose feelings and psyches I was loath to hurt, by carelessly throwing around my sexuality as if it were a weapon used to conquer and to build myself up. I think that more of this care is needed in our society as a corrective to our sexually careless society. We have explored, all right, in the society. We have come out of a period of puritanical ideas. But I think that casual sex also has its downside. Sex is like fire. Fire can be used to warm you, feed you, but it can also burn you. And so can sex. It is something deeply beautiful and natural, but it also can be very dangerous. And it can kill. I think in our instant gratification-oriented society, the, pendu the pendulum has swung very far in the opposite direction from the puritanical days. And we as a society don't demonstrate patience very often. Maybe part of the moral of this tale is that all of us, male or female, need to develop more self-awareness and the realization that we indeed are enough in and of ourselves and that we don't need to define ourselves through and by way of another, be it the opposite sex or the same sex. This goes for men just as much as women. That we are not nothing without another person. Perhaps then we will be able to have more fulfilling and volitional relationships, not ones based on desperation or conquest, seeking validation through another or through domination of another. So I hope my thoughts make some sense. Um, this is the kind of thing, it's a work in progress, as are many of my ideas, but um, I certainly would like to talk with people about this, hear your ideas. So please feel free to email us, chat with me further. If people think this is a good idea, not on my watch as a hashtag, I think this would be something good to, to help raise awareness. Um, so in, um, in closing, I do want to mention that in uh, upcoming episodes, uh, I still do intend to talk about um, some of the recent uh, uh, increases in deportations of uh, undocumented immigrants, particularly people who formerly were from the, the DACA category. I also want to talk about a rarely spoken of um, category of uh, people who are in the country legally who are uh, on F-1 visas, 
who are students, uh, international students, but who are working illegally while they are here legally, because this is a big issue and it affects a lot of people. And I want to talk about that. And I do have some personal experience, some personal professional experience with that. And I've done some firsthand research uh, with people who are affected uh, very gravely by that situation. So I do want to talk about that. Um, and then in the near future, we'll talk about some spiritual things as well. Um, so it's about 52 minutes at this point. So hopefully those of you who are listening to this on the way to work, hopefully you've arrived safely. And I hope that we can uh, speak again soon. So in the meantime, signing off, this is Dr. Eric Greenberg. Have a wonderful night and God bless you.